Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Are you referring to Diabolic? I assure you that this individual whose very name reveals his antagonism to the established values of our society will soon be brought to justice. This criminal paranoid seems to have dedicated himself to a one-man fight against our society. This black mark, this manifestation of exaggerated delinquency, has exceeded the boundaries of rational behavior. Within and without the legal structure, that is the very basis of our freedom and way of life. Well, Jenna, we've done it again. Another, another bootleg Bond episode. I keep saying... Your favorite episode. I keep saying the last time is the last time, but then we do another. But at least this time I got to pick the movies, which uh, I thought would be would make a huge difference, but really just the whole Bond formula, like doesn't matter how spoofish or absurd or, or what you do with it, it still just gets exhausting and boring after a while. <laughs> I mean... I kind of think what was semi-exhausting and boring was some of these films in general. (laughs) These were actually, I mean, they were all good picks. And I think of all the bootleg Bond movies that we've done so far, this is probably the most exciting episode. I mean, it includes a film that we know as the greatest film of all time. Anytime you get to talk about Modesty Blaze, you're really dealing with the peaks of cinema the scope and sweep of what cinema has to offer i know you you're kind of joking when you say that modesty blaze is the greatest film ever made are we being deadpan about that and actually trying to make people believe that it is because i believe that it is the greatest movie ever made that's no joke i believe that you believe that but um we're we're not to modesty blaze yet so what i what i've done is i've tried to make tell the people tell the people why you chose the films that you chose And why you sort of broke with our traditional bootleg Bond formula, which was to go by either a country or a specific series to just do a willy-nilly worldwide Bart-tastic choice of films. Well, isn't that enough? I mean, basically, I picked the films and then figured out what the theme was after the fact. But I don't even know what we're calling this. Absurdist Bond or Bond spoofs that Bart actually likes or... Movies that do Bond better than Bond does, or I don't know, but I all of those statements are true. So, <laughs> what I'm trying to do is figure out why there are so many James Bond spoofs. Like, okay, you've got this amazingly popular series this British spy sleeps with a lot of women, kills a lot of people, that's about it, and, and the world loves it. But instead of making a lot of you know straightforward, just copies of James Bond, a lot of what you get are these spoofs of this ridiculous idea that is already kind of a spoof in and of itself. It's not hard to mock James Bond because it's just a ridiculous fantasy. But what I noticed was that a lot of these movies spoof James Bond in really different ways. And uh, and I kind of wanted to take a sampling of James Bond spoofs from around the world. We've got six movies, and they're each from different countries here, and see how each one tackles 
James Bond and how they make fun of this worldwide fantasy figure. Is there anything else that's been, now you have me thinking about this, is there anything else that's been as spoofed as James Bond? Like, I'm really trying to think about it now. I feel like you always get, I mean, everything that comes out, there's usually like one or two. I mean, horror movies get spoofed a lot, but they still sort of try to walk that line. I guess a lot like these Bond spoofs do between like being actual horror movies and being spoofs of horror movies. And and a lot of these Bond spoofs that we watch are also doing the same thing. It's like at a certain point, they're like, oh, we haven't paid attention to the plot at all. Let's actually try and give people some action adventure spy thrills here that aren't spoofish. Every every genre has been spoofed in different ways, but none to, to the degree that James Bond has. And there there must be something there. I think you're right. I have a theory. Okay. Should I save it or should I tell it now? No, tell it now. And then as we're discussing, we'll see if it plays out. The first thing that came to my mind when you said this just now is that maybe James Bond gets spoofed so often because filmmakers tend to be, and scriptwriters tend to be artists, and James Bond is a jock. Mm-hmm. And in a way, these spoofs are like Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good theory. I'm trying to think of any other reason why, other than the fact that men saw this fantasy that indulged in absolutely everything that they indulge in, and then they had some kind of knee-jerk reaction, clearly, to be like, but that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it, that, to me, only says nerds getting insecure. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like the old axiom, if you can't do, teach. If you can't make a James Bond movie, spoof a James Bond movie. You know, there, there are others who approach Bond in, in a critical way that weren't necessarily trying to spoof James Bond. I mean, you've got a movie I really love is The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the Richard Burton movie from uh, from 65 based on a Lacare novel. And it's very clearly the, the reason that movie was made was somebody said, spying in the real world is nothing like how James Bond does it. We need to make a movie that shows the boring stuff that a spy actually does. And I think... The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is a perfect example of, you know, an anti-Bond, just a great movie. We'll have to talk about it at some point. So it's not a spoof per se, but it's definitely a response to how ridiculous the whole idea of Bond is and how it's just pure fantasy and has nothing to do with reality. And and this movie is um, trying to present clearly a fictionalized movie with some heavily plotted suspense, but far more realistic, you know, because Lucari was, was was a spy. There's also the Harry Palmer series with Michael Caine, starting with The Ipcris File and Funeral in Berlin, where there's still kind of fantastical spy stories, but the character himself, Harry Palmer, is kind of the anti-Bond. He's kind of a boring guy with glasses, and all of his personality traits are, they've taken bond and, and gone the opposite direction with harry palmer and, and i'd like to talk about those movies as well at some point anyway there are other ways to criticize this bond fantasy besides comedy and satire and uh, you know spike came in from the cold and harry palmer have, have kind of done that and actually oss Sondi set 
is a pretty... That's a straightforward one. But none of these movies that you're talking about, these are all jockey people. <laughs> well, not Richard Burton. These are all people like, oh, you think that's a man? I'm a man. Like the movie equivalents of that. Yeah. Which isn't to say I don't like them. They're great. Well, for Flint and Helm, for sure, that's the case where, you know, the American version of Bond is either this exaggeratedly competent Derek Flint who knows everything, can do everything, is just Bond to the nth degree. Or there's Matt Helm, who is just like your everyday schlub who is, uh, you know, gets to do these James Bond-like things. And these are sort of the American response to James Bond. But with these movies that I've chosen for tonight's episode, not that each of these movies necessarily represents the nation as a whole and what their response to James Bond is, but, you know, I I thought it'd be interesting to pick uh, a different version of Bond from six different countries and see what we came up with. And uh, we've got some pretty ridiculous offerings here. I feel like this was the squarest opening for a really ridiculous episode. (laughs) Yeah, well, first we're going to start with in uh, 1965 with a movie from Denmark. It's called Strike First Freddy. came out right around when Thunderball came out. Goldfinger was, uh, you know, the third actual James Bond film, and it was a worldwide sensation. You know, people liked Bond, but when Goldfinger came out in 64, this is when the explosion happened. And Strike First Freddy is the Danish response to James Bond, and it deals with this just average Joe named Freddy. He's a gag gift salesman, and he happens to switch suitcases with an actual James Bondish type spy on a cruise ship and uh, and the bad guys think that uh, Freddy is the spy that they're after and he gets uh, recruited by the Danish secret service to continue to pose as this James Bondish spy so they can capture the bad guy this uh, Dr. X or something but he, you never really, he's never a very important character. The, the main bad guy here is this guy named Kolik, who is the uh, just sort of bumbling right-hand man of the main bad guy, played by Paul Baumgart. He's the bad guy, and the two good guys are, are Martin Grunwald and uh, Ove Sproge. And the three of them were just sort of this three-man comedy team in Denmark at the time. And this is one of their earliest movies where they sort of did their thing together. They did two movies in the, in this Freddy series, and then they went on to do the Olsen Gang series, which went on for, like, 14 films, I think. And uh, they're all done by this Eric Balling, who directed and co-wrote this one. Based on this goofy, harmless James Bond spoof, that was really pretty enjoyable. I, I would be willing to check out the Olsen gang movies that are so beloved in Denmark and, and see what these three guys can do. Yeah, this is like the first Bond spoof that I've seen that, that just totally forgoes that joke about sexy women and then just doubles down on the slapstick and the absurdist jokes. And it's not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really 
enjoyable as you said it was just really pleasant even the female lead in this was charming instead of just being like one note sexy yeah essie person i really liked her a lot she really sort of exaggerated the, the sexiness of the bond girl in a really amusing way i mean in a lot of ways she reminded me of a sexed up rita tushingham i think that's what, who she kind of looks like but she she's yeah. just She's so likable and she's so self-aware of what she's doing. She starts out as the bad girl working for Kolik and trying to get one over on Freddy, but uh, they end up sort of just having this goofy romance, which is so refreshing because it's not like just, oh, we're attracted to each other, let's sleep together and, and that's it. Probably you'll die in the next scene like what happens in most <laughs> Bond movies. Like, they just have this sort of goofy romance where there's almost no actual sex involved. They just kind of like each other and are sort of flirty and fun together and just like spending time with each other. And I think that's part of what makes this movie so likable. Yeah, because Freddy, the titular Freddy, he is, you know, he's like this salesman who sells whoopee cushions and... So, you know, once you already start a film with li a literal whoopee cushion joke, it's hard to then suddenly go into sex comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can happen, but they smartly avoid it. There's only one scene where they kind of go for the sexy jokes, and it's funny because it gets undercut by Freddy himself, where there's this Agent Smith who is meeting up with Freddy and telling him, like, the whole deal, and you're, you're in this now kind of stuff, and he calls in room service at this hotel, and this sexy woman comes in, and he just, like, immediately grabs her ass and then lifts up her dress, and they find a gun in there, and then they make out. <laughs> And it's funny because it sort of like pulls out or it cuts to Freddy just standing there awkwardly <laughs> next to them as they make out for like seven minutes. Uh, it, and it's so it's like it's that kind of joke. It reminded me a lot of like airplane or even kind of Carl Reiner jokes. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like very much, you know, a joke about like there's a bomb in this cake and then getting the frosting on your nose when you're trying to figure out wh where the bomb is or if there is a bomb. The jokes aren't really about anything James Bond. They're just about slapstick, I suppose. <laughs> Half the time, it's like there's one scene where he walks into a room and just kind of throws a knife for kicks, and he ends up killing a guy behind a curtain. <laughs> like, that's a classic joke. That's a great joke. Yeah. Oh, you've got this Agent Smith, Ove Sprogo, who uh, is the, like, sort of James Bond stand-in, and he's, like, super competent, and that's why you get the scene early on where he's making out with this maid with a gun and doing the James Bond thing. Freddy is there just to undercut the whole thing, and he's, uh, I mean, he's not exactly a bumbling fool, like, inspector clouseau or something like he's you know a fairly smart guy and he's really unflappable his only like real detriment is that he has no experience doing the spy stuff but he really is like nothing bothers him he's got this really like sort of happy-go-lucky perspective and he's sort of pleased to be part of this spy thing when things go really wrong he'll blame agent smith for dragging him into this business one of the best scenes too is in the end where he's like you know they're about to die and he's there with agent smith and and he's trying to agent smith's really trying to figure out how to disarm this bomb or whatever and all freddie does is stand there and say you're so goddamn useless <laughs> <laughs> totally just berates him you know, thinking like, oh, we're going to die. And then when they get saved by this sort of fluke, you know, immediately he's like, yeah, I didn't really mean what I said before. <laughs> I know you're doing your best. <laughs>
Yeah, he's just sort of unflappable, but and not very competent, but you know, brave enough to actually get things done, not by accident, the way that Inspector Clouseau might. It's it's a pretty loving spoof of James Bond. It's not. There's some, it's a pretty direct spoof in a lot of ways. You have that reverse gun yeah that shoots and it and part of the the joke is that it the the explanation is so confusing (laughs) that no one is ever going to be able to use this gun uh you also have him emerging from the ocean in a full white tux a la (laughs) bond girl all of the spies listening in on the in the hotel rooms were uh him and and sonia or as you were saying they're sort of just having like cute flirtiness where she just says like i i like expensive things and he's like well i'm poor i'm a salesman and she's like well as long as you keep wearing that white jacket and it's like this very just sort of sweet dopey lovey-dovey stuff and it cuts to both of the spies and i think a split screen listening in their respective holes in the wall just bored out of their minds And of course, then suddenly there's a loud bang and they both jump up excited like, all right, the action's happening. And uh, it was just like a champagne cork. <laughs> well, we'll uh, we'll put this one in the category of gentle satire that relegates the actual Bond character to a kind of a sidekick role. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is a, a recentering of, of man, though, right? This is... Um... You have the the man's man, but in the end, that uh, that Agent Smith is kind of a he's a fool on, on his own, and the guy who gets the girl is is the doofus. So, yeah, and it's because of his sweetness. Yeah, and Freddie's success kind of flummoxes uh, Agent Smith, and he goes a little bit crazy by the end. He goes a little bomb crazy. the The whole end of this movie <laughs> is oh, the three of them. Uh, it's explosive. S- yeah. <laughs> Freddie Smith and Sonia just going around the the villain's island and detonating bomb after bomb after bomb and just having a great time. And it's so excessive. And in that way, it is kind of like a a Carl Reiner kind of joke. Yeah, like she comes over and they are blowing up so many things that they start to have fun with how they press down on the handle to blow things up. So she like sits on it and he pushes it with his foot, you know, like they go crazy with it. It's cute. Yeah, I enjoyed this one. And this is our first foray into Denmark, so good job. We've gotten to Scandinavia a little bit, but this is our first Danish movie. But I'm thinking I really want to get the Olsen gang in here sometime soon, see, <laughs> see what these three guys do in the crime caper comedy series. Well, next up, and this is and the reason why this podcast is five hours long. No, I'm just kidding. It's not going to be five the hours The reason long. this podcast exists, really. True. On our main page, there's a photo right when you load cinema-60.com. Yeah, you don't have a choice. Who do you see, but... The first image you get when you go onto our page, Monica Vitti as Modesty, Modesty Blaze. Blaze. She'll strike you down with just a single glance or just a single glancing blow. Exactly why she slays so many men no man alive will ever know. Modesty Jenna definitely doesn't love this movie half as much, a quarter as much as I do. But I think this is one of the greatest movies. I just sit there with a stupid grin on my face for the entire movie. It's the most ridiculous Bond spy caper spoof there is. And and so much of the comedy just kind of leaves you scratching your head. Like, is this even a joke? 
directed by Joseph Losey. It's 1966, UK film based on a popular British comic book about this uh, female ex-jewel thief who becomes a spy in the service of the British government uh, named Modesty Blaze. The movie actually started as a pretty straight adaptation of the comic by the author of the comic, Peter O'Donnell. But after you know going through a few hands, when it wound up in Joseph Losey's lap, he wanted to turn it into a sort of spoof, a uh, pop art spoof of James Bond movies, and uh, you know went through several rewrites. The author of the comic and the original script, Peter O'Donnell, was not too happy about what Joseph Losey did to his work. I have to say, I don't blame him. <laughs> like, if I had written a really serious comic strip and I got this movie, I would be pretty pissed. I would forgive really quickly once I saw how, how great <laughs> the movie was. Harold Pinter is one of the people who contributed to the final screenplay for this movie. It's uh, impossible to say what it was he actually contributed, but he and, and Losey worked together and The Servant and, and Accident and several other movies, so um, they just had a good working relationship. But this movie is very different in tone from most of what you get from Joseph Losey. I can't think of anything else he's done that's such a comedy. I mean, other than Boom, which we watched for our Tennessee Williams episode, which in theory, was a comedy. Was that a comedy? But <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. It, yeah, who, who knows what Boom was supposed to be. But this is very definitely intended to be a comedy, and I think it's hilarious, even when I'm not even sure what the joke is. <laughs> the very beginning of the movie is, is just Modesty Blaze, played by Monica Vitti, lounging in her circular bed next to her uh, you know, 66 era computer, which is you know, preparing her for her next mission and, and shoots out this list of accessories that she needs for her mission. And Modesty says, and almost incomprehensibly, it was probably you know three or four times watching this movie before I could actually figure out what she says because her accent is so thick. But she says to the computer, Idiot, that one's at the cleaners. Talking about uh, apparently this outfit that she's going to need for her next mission. And at that point, the, the computer just starts spitting out all of these data cards at her. And she just sort of starts dancing around in these cards that are spitting out of this computer and laughing. And it's just it's sort of incomprehensible what's going on. Or clearly there's a joke happening here, but you don't know what it is. And that's sort of what I love about this movie. It's just so bizarre. And clearly there's this sense of anything that might be traditionally exciting or traditionally funny we're going to subvert it a little bit so that you're not even really clear what's happening or why it's happening or why it's supposed to be funny or what the joke is. It's just this crazy, like, op art masterpiece that really rewards multiple viewings, not just because you can start to understand what Monica Vitti is saying, but because it's just, you realize that, that every shot, every every moment of this movie has a little joke in there where you're not really sure, oh, is that a... That, that's supposed to be a joke, isn't it? It's a brilliant masterpiece. So you say like specifically thought out, you know, undermining satirical point. And, and I say Joseph Losey, wonderful director, doesn't know how to direct comedy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I like this movie. Don't get me wrong. I very much enjoy this movie. I don't Bart enjoy this movie, but I very much enjoy it. The the sets in this movie are outstanding. There are so many circular rotating beds in this, and that's all I want out of a 60s film. Monica Vitti is amazing. She's actually a really decent comedic actress. I, I've seen, you know, in other things. <laughs> and in this, there's she has some moments on her own where she really does shine through. Every character in this is a huge... I feel like the casting in general is completely... is as much of a joke as the rest <laughs> of it like terrence stamp i think he is the weirdest choice that was made in this entire film Willie garvin yeah and i like terrence stamp too but he just feels so out of place he makes absolutely no sense he's her cockney assistant slash platonic lover slash you know just partner in crime she has these you know this sort of upper class ritzy lifestyle and he's sort of her lower class guy from the streets who who gets stuff done and they have this sort of platonic relationship but at one point in this movie while they're eating giant cones of gelato they burst into a, a song about uh, we, we, <laughs> the most amazing song oh <laughs> uh, we would have we should have we could have we can sort of thing that was more on tune <laughs> Than the actual song, because the actual song, quite frankly, rivals Paint Your Wagon for people that cannot sing, who are singing a song to each other in a clearly meant to be ridiculous and avant-garde decision to just suddenly have a like big musical number. Well, it's not big. There's only the two of them. But to have this musical number in the middle of this movie that completely doesn't fit whatsoever. And then to have Terrence Cockney stamp singing it in his best cockney with vd singing it like she sounds like she's lowering her voice and just smoked like 20 cigarettes before she recorded this yeah uh, and she doesn't hit any of the notes the way she's supposed to she doesn't even try yeah. like she knows she's like i can't sing i'm not even gonna <laughs> and it's brilliant it's terrifying I mean, like, the lyrics are also so insipid and ridiculous that it is one of the more brilliant aspects of this film. And we haven't even mentioned Dirk Bogard yet. I'm still stuck on Terrence Stamp here because (laughs) Terrence Stamp, you're saying, like, they they have him as the platonic partner. And he is. He's like a nobody. You barely have any understanding of who he is other than he just shows up eventually and is like, I'm here to help. And no one's interested in him. And, like... Terrence Stamp was a good looking guy. <laughs> like it's just there's such a weird like they basically cast a leading man or at least like a secondary leading man. You know what I mean? I don't know. He doesn't. He's not like he spends a lot of time with his shirt. But off. I, in real life, he was dating like Julie Christie and he was dating like Gene Shrimpton. So this is like, you know, a very like trendy big star. And here they have him as like the bus boy. <laughs> I just don't get it. It's just very, very, very strange. But Dirk Bogard, this time around, so I've seen this movie a couple times. This time around, I think I finally appreciated him. (laughs) He's so great as Gabriel, the villain of the film, who uh, gets so squeamish anytime he knows that one of the people he has to kill is going to die. He's got this white shock of hair that seems so against his character and uh you know at a certain point 
like every, everybody's hair in this film, uh, Terrence Stamp starts out as a uh, you know bleach blonde and becomes you know, brunette by the end. And Monica Vitti is constantly changing hair colors, and she pulls off a wig at one point and you know has dark hair. And and at the at the very end of this film, Dirk Bogard pulls off his white wig, and it's it's just there's no continuity in this movie whatsoever, and that's part of the joke. You know, people will change costume and hair color just for no particular reason. In the middle of the scene, one shot they look one way, and another shot they they look another. Monica Vitti looks very little like her namesake in in the comics, Modesty Blaze. But at one point, when she's with her British spy, used to be sometimes boyfriend. She goes behind this like line of palms that are inside the apartment. She comes back out. She has dark hair, and she's in a, a leather suit like the character. And you actually see the Modesty Blaze comics like sitting on this guy's couch. So it's it's meta in, in certain respects. And it's just, there's no illusion that there are any stakes at all in this film and that there's any attention being paid to why things are happening and when they're happening and what the purpose is. And that's part of what I really love about this movie. And I think it's also why this this movie... Actually, I think it was, you know, a, a modest hit at the time, so to speak. But for a long time, it was really considered just trash, like not worth anybody's time. Critics kind of hated this movie, and, and so it had a, a pretty lousy reputation for a long time, but then it kind of gained a, a cult following, and now it's become beloved again. But it's easy to see why anybody going into this thing expecting a movie that makes any kind of sense or has a plot or a storyline that you're supposed to get invested in would be disappointed by it. Uh, it's just all style and goofiness and you know just... Let's see what we can get away with here. And it's great. I'm not sold, I guess, on this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, for me, I, I again, like, I enjoy this movie, but there's also a degree of just, like, irreverence for the sake of irreverence to me it gets boring. And there's a lot of this movie where I wish that they had, and it might really just be the fact that Lucy is not, all of his movies are dead serious and they're they're great. <laughs> but I don't think he knows how to shoot comedy. And part of the joke comes through him sort of shooting this as if it were not a comedy, but then the script being comedic, but also this subversion of comedy, which makes it sort of the anti-laughter. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know that I, I didn't really laugh. I think maybe laughed like one or two times, even though the whole thing is mostly ridiculous. I mean... Gabriel sitting there in his Bond villain castle holding increasingly larger cups of various colored liquids, which at one point just has like a live fish swimming in it. And then like it, the angle changes and the fish is clearly dead. I feel bad for that fish, but that's funny. <laughs> that's comedy. <laughs> There's some great perspective comedy in, in those scenes where you see this large glass that up close and you think oh it's just a perspective shot it's deep focus but then you find out no this glass is actually larger than gabriel's head and it's not forced perspective (laughs) well but that's great that kind of stuff is good but then i mean he just goes on and on (laughs) i don't know there's a lot of downtime in this movie when something's too irreverent it starts to just feel like people don't want to be there 
I think that this was maybe there was a degree of tension on the set anyhow because of the fact that Lucy was arguing with the original creator and then apparently Monica Vitti, she had Antonioni on set because they were dating and he would just like walk in and like direct her on top of Losi directing her, which eventually Losi had to be like, hey, you're my hero, but you need to leave. <laughs> because if anybody's more qualified to direct comedy than uh, Joseph Losi, it's Michelangelo Antonioni. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, that's what, I don't know, or maybe Monica Vitti being in that Antonioni headspace wasn't ready to do something like this at the moment. I don't know. I don't know. There's something missing in this movie for me, which seems to be what you delight in. Yeah, the center is definitely missing from this movie, and it's like cutting into a cake and and finding out that it's nothing but frosting. See, then I'm disappointed because I wanted cake. That's the difference between you and me. No, um, so then, like, all right, so where does this fall in the Bond world? I mean, this is sort of not technically a Bond film in that it's really based on a, a comic, which is a spy comic, so it's not that it's not a Bond film, but... Well, and the people running, trying to defeat Gabriel are British Secret Service, and they've recruited Monty Blaze, who has already done some spy work for them because it uh, takes a thief to catch a thief sort of thing. And, you know, while while Modesty Blaze is doing her own, like, fairly ineffective spying and, and just sort of stumbling on uh, various things, uh, having really goofy knife fights with some bad guys and not managing to protect an informant and, and uh, you know, not being much of a heroine other than she's just fun to watch no matter what she's doing, so she's, by default, our hero. The You've got these, like, actual bland British agents in the background having this fake plane fly that supposedly has the jewels that Gabriel's supposed to steal, and he, Gabriel shoots it down. And so there's, it's like, if you actually, like, start to pay attention to the story a little bit, there's actual, like, Bond-type story in there it's a bond story but it's just so not interested in that stuff that you sort of lose track of all of it so maybe this is one of the first this is at the vanguard of james bond spoofs that acknowledge how outdated james bond is for the decade there definitely is an acknowledgement here that nobody really cares about the stories at all in james bond movies and so we can do whatever we want and it doesn't matter that's where most of the satire lies here and what it's taking James Bond to task for more than anything is just saying, you're pretending there's a story here, but there's no story. You're creating the suspense when there really is nothing at stake that anybody cares about. It's just action scene after action scene, but instead we're going to set up action scenes and subvert them so that nothing happens. The satire is on a story level more than anything with this movie. See, I feel like because it embraces pop culture so insanely, it's basically just pointing out how square James Bond is. And then sort of casting a woman in its own way, like, again, like, it wasn't really the intention because she's sort of a flat character with a a sexy scorpion tattoo on her thigh. Gigantic. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like, I mean, it's not like she was made to be feminist. But I think weirdly, in a way, this film, because it's so anti-bond and it's like anti-film it comes full circle to being weirdly progressive and 
ahead of its time in the fact that Bond is ridiculous. Even for the 60s, he was ridiculous. He was like this hangover from the 50s. But that's part of his character. I mean, it's part of how he managed to bridge the gap between adults and the kids at the, at the time is that he's, you know, the sexy action hero who gets all the ladies and who doesn't like that. But he's also really like he hates the Beatles and it's really like much more of a rat pack Frank Sinatra type for the parents of these kids who are going to see these silly action movies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like we established in our first James Bond episode right. where we watched all the Bonds. Mm hmm. I feel kind of the same way about the next film, which was the first time I had seen this, and I also walked away not really understanding what I had just seen, which is Branded to Kill. Go ahead. Do a plot synopsis. I dare you. <laughs> yeah, I don't have one. I mean... No one does. I mean, <laughs> this came out in 1967. It is directed by Seijun Suzuki. It's about a guy named Hanada, which means flowers, so that must be part of the joke. And the actor is uh, Joe Shishido. He is the third-ranking hitman in Japan. And then he becomes the target of the first ranking hitman eventually after he kills the second ranking. And then sort of a woman comes to him in the perpetual rain and says, I need you to kill someone else. And he botches it because a butterfly lands on his scope. And <laughs> then he has to kill his wife. Uh, his perpetually nude wife. That's the plot, right? You love this movie. Yeah. I, I watched this for a second time in preparation for this episode, and I still didn't feel like I had a handle on it enough to, to talk about it. So I watched it again yesterday, or <laughs> I watched it again today, actually, and uh, and I still don't really have much of a handle on what's happening in the movie. But I I love it. It's just a collection of amazing scenes that I mean I could I think I have some kind of interpretation of what's happening it's not just randomness it's not just a collection of hitman scenes there's definitely a solid spoof of both like the James Bond license to kill license to love it's like how do you connect with humanity if you like are just killing everybody all the time this murderer this this number three hitman realizes that yeah i mean death is such a part of who i am that clearly i'm just obsessed with death and when he meets this this misako who is herself kind of suicidal depressive and is you know constantly shown as like this this angel of death like she's always surrounded by these butterflies that are pinned to the wall and these dead birds that are hanging from strings and and she's just like she represents his obsession with death and 
I mean, this is this is also me reading into a film that I find really compelling, and because I'm so compelled by it, I want to make some meaning out of it, but it really may not have much meaning at all, and we're never intended to get any kind of meaning out of it. It's just a crazy stylistic exercise, really, that's really entertaining. You know, as I was saying, as much of a Bond spoof as it is a, a spoof of the sort of Western where you're the fastest gun in the West and, and you know, everybody's competing to be the, the number one, like the fastest gun, and you only achieve that goal by killing everybody else who's anywhere near you. And, th- and that's sort of the trajectory of this movie a bit. It's like Hanada eventually has a showdown with the number one, the phantom number one hitman in Japan uh, for the final you know, third of this movie, it seems. It's just the two of them in the sort of extremely bizarre cat and mouse game where they're, they both are in the room together. Like, number one won't take his eyes off Hanada. He's, his, his assignment is to to kill number three, but he wants to prove to him why he's number one by like playing all these mind games and just trying to exhaust Hanada and not letting him sleep and, and eventually like coming to his apartment and staying with him and sleeping in the same bed with him, but sleeping with his eyes open and not ever like leaving his side to go to the bathroom. So he just pees on the couch sitting he next to Hanada himself. just so he doesn't, you, you see the, you, the, the piss like dribbling down his pant leg because that's how good he is. He he won't even go to the bathroom because he, he won't take his eyes off this guy. And it's just, and there's a, you know, there's a showdown in a boxing ring the, at the finale. That's really incredible. And it's, it's just a satire of this macho death wish thing. It's like, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword, and it's incomprehensible but incredibly entertaining. I mean, yeah, it was great. Just I felt like I needed to rewatch it the second I saw it, and I I should have rewatched it quite frankly. But but I feel like I, I mean, it makes me feel good that you watched it like twice in a <laughs> row and still felt like you didn't understand it because there's just so much. This is another one where the pacing is just so bizarre that it's hard sometimes just to even know what you're looking at. I mean, this made me laugh more than Modesty Blaze, but it is <laughs> easily just as empty. <laughs> I mean, you're you're saying you found something there. I would love to, I I want to know even more because I I feel like uh, all I got from this was also just irreverence, just like somebody who is and and apparently this this movie was it's on criterion i mean apparently this movie was just sort of made on the spot half the time and suzuki was very much it sounds like his directing style was irreverent <laughs> it sounds like he just wanted to make whatever he wanted to make and everyone just sort of followed him and it feels like dream logic it feels like well now we're going to do this and uh, then we're going to you know we're going to walk from this room to this room and there's not any reason for that. And there's no connection between the two rooms, but we're going to do it because the characters seem to be compelled to move forward, even though they're moving forward into just more nothingness (laughs) and it never really builds to anything. 
And then there's all these weird little outliers of like moments and details that just are also baffling. But, you know, like he, the fact that Hinata gets off on the smell of boiling rice, which quite frankly is understandable. I, too, I love yeah, the smell of that's... rice. But he like gets like in, you know, he gets like sexually charged by it and like it, semi almost like he acts like an addict about it. And every time he sniffs rice, then he can go bang his wife, who, as you mentioned, is perpetually naked, which is also just funny because she's just also there's all these messed up sex scenes where she's like having sex, like on the stair, like on a spiral staircase, which is like that's that's out of the room. You know what I mean? Like these <laughs> these are scenes that don't it just doesn't make any sense uh, comfort wise, let alone for the narrative. Uh, I love there's a scene where he he has a lighter and it's like a spy gadget and they have this close up of a gun inside of the lighter. It looks like a hand inside of a lighter holding a gun and they never explain how this very small man got inside (laughs) of this lighter uh, to like shoot. I thought it was a very large lighter (laughs) with a regular sized man. That's another question. It could be like, I don't know, like this movie from this film, anything can be, anything can happen. I love there's a, the wife ends up shooting him because she says I had to, because all the other guys are going to come to kill you. And you know, they paid me or something like that. And of course it like, he's like naked except for his pants and it hits the belt buckle. So he survives. And then I just, I, it like, it cuts to later where she calls him and she leaves him a voicemail like, what are you up to, darling? Don't be mad at me. <laughs> Which was also just, it is, it's that dream logic. It's like, wait, weren't you the person that shot me? Oh, okay. Let's, yeah, let's go for a drive now. You know, like, oh, he goes and kills her, but <laughs> he shoots her right in the business, actually. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the direction his gun is pointed. It's not unintentional. <laughs> right in the business. And then he gives her a swirly. Yeah, this movie is the definition of a career wrecker, which is exactly what this did for Suzuki. I mean, his movies never <laughs> never made a whole lot of sense, but he just made movie after movie for Nikatsu. He was just, you know, this incredible stylist, made all sorts of gangster movies and, you know, some war movies and a lot of, you know, erotic sort of things. And he made... I counted 26 films in the 60s, all Jeez. between 60 and 67. And this movie, Branded to Kill, just was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back for Nikatsu Studio. They were like, you can't make movies that make any sense or make any money, so you're fired. And I and I guess there was you know, some sort of lawsuit where Suzuki sued the studio for firing him and he sort of became this cult hero of young people in Japan for just how rebellious he was and how he said uh, you screw you to the studio and sort of became even more beloved after he was blacklisted from making movies for 10 years than he was while he was actually making movie after movie after movie in the 60s for young audiences, you know, these sex and violence filled movies. But yeah, this is just pure sensation, pure, just like visual glory. So much like experimental stuff with, I don't know, you get animated sequences and just so much stylized non sequitur stuff just you know so much of what i was talking about that that excites me so much where you're watching the screen and just saying huh (laughs) 
Is that supposed to be funny? Is that does that have something to do with the plot? What is that there for? Like any time I'm watching a movie and I just cannot figure out why I'm watching something on the screen, I get a little bit excited. And this movie is sort of end to end exactly that. I feel like this is the inevitable conclusion for someone who's seen too many movies. <laughs> I guess so. You've been corrupted. Where else does somebody as jaded as me go other than you know, completely nonsensical? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I mean, it has a great jazzy soundtrack. So how does this tie into Bond here? It's almost like teeing up your expectations just to hit it out of the park, essentially. It doesn't get more generic and it doesn't get more mainstream, I guess, than James Bond. And so, yeah, to take everything from James Bond and then to just pump it all up to the utmost and to stretch this one character here and and stretch another one there until it just becomes this grotesque and meaningless mask. (laughs) (laughs) I think what you're referring to here is how the star of this film uh joe shishido has like these incredible puffed up cheeks that he actually got uh plastic surgery so they could look you know semi-deformed and have these big like chipmunk type cheeks he's sort of this unremarkable character actor until he got this ridiculous plastic surgery and then he sort of became this big star because he has these gigantic cheeks that make him look like you know, Orson Welles or something. Why anybody would would have plastic surgery to make themselves look like Orson Welles, I don't know. But, but this guy did, and he became a star because of it. Young Orson Welles. But yeah, it just, it, it doubles down on the whole link between sex and death and the James Bond mythos. And, you know, sort of says, this is what you're going to a James Bond movie for. We'll give you nothing but that. We won't even explain why any of this stuff is happening. We will just give you everything to the extreme except instead of a vodka martini shaken not stirred you get you know the odor of of boiling rice there is a a quote from suzuki who explains that by saying quote it's because he's a japanese assassin if he were italian he'd get turned on by macaroni right (laughs) and you're like oh okay true the next movie we watched i was a little sorry to see you didn't enjoy it more it was the end of agent W4C from Czechoslovakia directed by Václav Vorlecek I had only sampled this movie before. I was sort of curious about the director. He did another one called Who Wants to Kill Jesse? That's pretty beloved in the Czech New Wave scene. And uh, and I thought this was going to be another like Lemonade Joe, which is a, a Czech movie I know that you really enjoy. I guess there weren't any musical numbers in this one, so you didn't like it quite as much. I'll tell you exactly. Though I think you should introduce the film first. All right. This is basically Czechoslovakia saying... Well, we're an Eastern Bloc country. We don't have a whole lot of money. We're a bunch of schlubs. We have a secret service, but we can't really afford anybody as cool or as classy as James Bond. But the Parisian version of James Bond is coming to town. 
and our one agent who knows how to do anything is, is off on another case. So let's just get our accountant to follow this guy and see what he's up to and see why he's in our country doing his spying business. So uh, Fustka is the accountant for the Czech Secret Service, and he's drafted to follow Cyril Wan, Agent W4C, and see what business he's up to. Of course, Fustka has no training as a spy at all, so he's not exactly incompetent, sort of like Freddy in the Danish movie we watched. He's just a regular guy with no training whatsoever. He's got a head on his shoulders, he just doesn't know how to be a spy, so he kind of blunders his way through all this business. His dog, who's his constant companion, kind of manages to do uh, most of the really important spy work for him. Actually, the subtitle of this film, in English it's called The End of Agent W4C, but a Czech title is something like The End of Agent W4C Because of Fusky's Dog, or something. (laughs) I don't know. Basically, uh, it tells you right in the title that Agent W4C is going to die at the end of this movie because of Fusky's dog, and that's exactly what happens. But yeah, I think it really is just sort of a Czech self-deprecating version of James Bond where you get the super low-budget version of a super spy. Even the James Bond character himself, Cyril Wan, his big gadget is this alarm clock you know swiss army alarm clock that can do everything it's got an atom bomb in it (laughs) amongst you know every other thing that it could possibly have i really enjoyed this movie i thought it was really clever in its sort of mock epic tone where it sort of champions the czech character the czech people by saying you know we're just regular people and we're we're pretty poor but you know we can still get the job done and just sort of dismisses james bond as this fancy pants guy with all these fancy gadgets who is all style and no substance and i thought it had a lot of clever jokes it was fun but see that's what i didn't like about it was exactly that i thought it just came across as sort of clunky propaganda and i'm not even against communist propaganda like i'm kind of for it but like i think if you're going to do a parody you can't then turn around and make it like a sincere up the little guy kind of thing without having way better jokes <laughs> you know like it's just not enjoyable i mean it, there there are some definitely some funny moments in this especially just whenever agent w4c is in the shot and he's always just being a total brute and walking through places there's like a scene where he just throws a candelabra through a window just because they want to open it and then later on uh the the cop comes up from the street to say like yeah hey, we found a candelabra that clearly came from your office and he just shoots him dead (laughs) like that was funny like that was good but there's not enough of that and so it would be one thing if it was just this like james bond's a brute and czechoslovakia is the straight man to the ridiculousness of this james bond wannabe but they don't really go for that fully what instead they kind of end up following this bumbling foska and and his adorable dog pida the dog is great. Honestly, had they just done a full-on James Bond dog film, I would have been here and back again. Like, I would have loved that. That would have been my favorite film on the planet. That would have been my Modesty Blaze. But no, 
The dog is cute. The dog is great. But the humor hinges on this hokey, folky, sappy sincerity, I guess. The Fosca guy is just boring. I didn't really care to see him bumbling through things because I didn't care about him. I mean, it was sort of amusing that they take this uh, accountant and say, now you're a spy, you know, like, okay, it could have been okay. But uh, he, he just didn't do anything for me. I liked him. I liked Fosca a lot just because he's such a regular guy. But a big part of the comedy in this movie <laughs> is that every criminal in Czechoslovakia is aware that uh, Agent W4C is in town, is in Prague. And so every scene just has him being followed by dozens of these villains who are trying to like spy on him and try and figure out what he's trying to do there and what, why he's there. And you've got these guys who like seemingly know their job and are trying to like act inconspicuous. And then you've got Fausca, who's also there to do the same thing, figure out why this James Bond, you know, super agent is in Prague and, but he just doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing and manages to sort of bumble his way through it because Cyril Juan is equipped to deal with all of these uh, regular criminals who act in the expected way and in trying to get the upper hand on him. But because Fausca doesn't really know what he's doing, like he always manages to prove himself as much smarter than Cyril Juan, even when he's not trying to be. And I thought it was a good gag that worked out in a, in a lot of pretty amusing ways. Yeah, I don't know. It, didn't, it just didn't do it for me. But it's not bad. You know, you should watch it for the dog. A bird does die for this film, though. There's definitely a dead bird in this. Yeah, not as many as in uh, Branded to Kill. <laughs> they looked, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Moving on. Claude Chabrol, the French New Wave director, made a lot of really great films in the 60s, but we've managed on, on Cinema 60 to only cover two of his most minor films that he made in this decade. <laughs> uh, the, the first being Wise Guys, which we covered in one of our Kiss, Mary Kill episodes, and now we're doing Who's Got the Black Box, or Road to Corinth, uh, from goofy spy movies that he was making in the mid-60s and sort of causing him to be called sort of a sellout by a lot of the other French New Wave directors. Well, you know what? They were still buddies with him, but there was still this sort of idea that he, he was a bit of a sellout. This one stars Jean Seberg, you know, seven years after Breathless, but still speaking French with her terrible American accent, <laughs> uh, who is the wife of a French spy who gets himself killed fairly early on in this film, and she spends the rest of the film trying to get to the bottom of it to defeat the criminals who are responsible for his death because she knows that he was onto some some kind of lead, which is what got him killed. And her husband's best friend, played by Maurice Ronet, Dex, is you know sort of a, a by-the-books government agent who is also really pretty smitten with her, and that sort of suggests that they've, Maybe if they haven't actually, um, you know, consummated their relationship already, have been 
pretty flirtatious for a long time. He decides that he wants to sort of help her, that she's not full of beans and she really uh, does maybe know how to figure out where these black boxes are that can control satellites or whatever MacGuffin is in the center of this film. And yeah, so it's basically another sort of bumbling, incompetent bond, but this one is a female, so that makes it interesting. <laughs> what do you think of this? <laughs> I like Jean Seberg, but she couldn't hold up this film. And it's not even her fault. It's just that there's nothing happening. And she was our one lifeline, and she's just not strong enough. <laughs> you know, the first half of this movie made me laugh. It just starts off with this magician being taken in on suspect of, of smuggling. And as they're interrogating him, he keeps doing all of these stupid tricks. <laughs> like pulling cigarettes out of thin air and stuff like that. And he unties his own hands and whatever. Like that kind of stuff was exactly what I wanted out of this. Like they could have just done a straight James Bond movie, which they basically do here. And then just had really bizarre little jokes happening that, that nobody, either nobody addresses or only one person sees, you know what I mean? Like, and it kind of goes for that. But the problem is there's nothing in the middle of this. It's just Gene Seberg wandering around trying to figure out a mystery that is not so mysterious or interesting. And occasionally you get like little kids in Greece just being pains in the ass. And like that's probably the best <laughs> joke in the middle of this is just like someone sitting there and some kid walks over and is like, hey, yo, give me your sunglasses. No come on, give me your sunglasses. No, <laughs> come on, give me your sunglasses. Just like doesn't end kind of stuff. Like that's great. Loved it. But you know, it gets into this Gene Seberg being framed for her husband's death and then the getting, you know, into car chases and murderous priests and, uh, you know, all of this uh, assassin waiting in the room for everyone. It just doesn't, the jokes don't really like they're there, but they don't really land. In some ways, I think part of the joke is just the fact that America kind of sucks. Because <laughs> this is sort of about, you know, the the main characters here are fighting to protect the CIA's interest in Greece, which, of course, is the, <laughs> an anti-hero in and of itself. So it's the terrorists are, you know, and I say that with air quotes, are the ones that are just trying to defend their own countries. It's sort of laughable in itself. Which I think the movie is clearly self-aware enough about. But it doesn't... Like, it could have done more, I guess, to call attention to that in a way. It ends great, though. It has a really good ending. Again, like, it just suddenly... It just gets right back into the jokes about, like, the bad guy. Uh, who's the bad guy in this movie? Kalides. Oh, just okay. a, a factory owner who makes sculptures for these ancient sites and, and puts these black boxes that control satellites or something inside. You know, just ridiculous James Bond stuff. Yeah, they're trying to stop missiles from America, basically. And that's what these black boxes are intercepting. And, and again, like, not really such a bad thing. <laughs> but, yeah, so he chains, or Kalidas, he chains Gene Seberg. Like, she meets him on, on top of 
a ruin in Greece. It's like this picturesque, uh, you know, area. And then he just like chains her to a track that like comes out of absolutely nowhere. There's clearly no train tracks on top of this Greek mountain. <laughs> and it's she's like on this like looks like a coal cart. And the track literally just starts like right in front of him and it just ends off of the cliff so it's clearly makes absolutely no sense why there would even be train tracks there but because this is a james bond movie they're like yeah she has to get tied to some train tracks (laughs) (laughs) so that was great Uh, and then eventually she gets rescued and they shoot the kalides guy just like right in the chest and then (laughs) he puts him on the train tracks and he gets you know he just gets flung off the cliff and he falls in what is basically the scene from Hot Rod. He just falls for like a solid 15 seconds down the hill. And then the best part is it it kind of tilts back to the two main characters sort of nodding solemnly as they watch him still falling down this cliff. And they're like, he wouldn't have suffered. (laughs) You know, as if this was such a great thing to have happened. But um yeah, I don't know. It's there. It's there. It just isn't... There's not enough in this film. And I, I can't tell if it was Gene Seberg. She's not bad in this. She just, she's just boring. See, I was hoping you would enjoy this film as much as I did the first time I saw it, where I thought it was just going to be a fairly straightforward James Bond kind of movie and then all of the, like comic subversion in there which is really deadpan like it really underplays the comedy in this like if you were to watch this movie with the sound off you probably wouldn't even know that it's a comedy right but it's just like it's just so full of subversions and unexpected little funny touches that uh, it really took me by surprise the first time I saw it and you know constantly surprised me with all its little funny bits that I'd It always seemed to come out of nowhere. So the second time through, I was actually, I ended up being a little disappointed because I already knew the tone of the movie and knew what it was going for. And then I, you know, started to watch it a little bit more for story, which there isn't much. No one, (laughs) no one really cares. And it, it ended up being a little bit boring this time through. But I thought, I was hoping that your first time through, you'd, you'd, find it to be the the unexpected pleasure that i found it to be my the first time i saw it well you made the fatal mistake of telling me to watch this in an episode about satires that's true (laughs) it was okay i I was like i would watch this movie again not so soon but the good moments in this are good it just it's overall not enough yeah the leads are pretty land gene seberg is okay i mean it's fun to watch her this you know completely unskilled american try and you know, figure her her way through this mystery michelle bouquet as uh, head of the cia in greece sharps ends up being the most memorable character because he's so sleazy and he's in theory a good guy he's trying to defeat the bad guys but he just does not believe anything she's saying because she's an amateur and all he cares about is sleeping with her like even when her husband is still alive he's you know her husband who works for him she he's trying to like get her in bed and i mean a lot of the anti-american satire is right there in that character sharps who when, when we first see him is uh, just in front of this huge american flag so there's no 
mistaking that America is the target here. But uh, it's unfortunately a pretty minor movie, I have to admit, even though I've defended this film and, and have told people, oh, you've got to see it. It's, this, this, is a, this, this movie's great. You lied. You lied. Be I honest. Lied. I lied. I lied. <laughs> but that's how watching movies works. That's how memory works. You know, you sort of forget the context that you watch a, a film in, and you just remember the pleasure of watching it. And then you, know, you realize, oh, a, lo- a lot of what I enjoyed about that movie is what I brought to it the first time I saw it. And it's not necessarily there in the movie itself. But uh, it's still fun. It's Chabrol. You're always sure to get some subversive pleasures from any Chabrol you watch. So, yeah, it's okay. Um, I'm going to let you take the lead with Danger Diabolique. Because this movie I put on the list because I thought, oh yeah, Jenna's going to love this thing. So did you? Hell yeah, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> this is another one, though, that it's not, I mean, it it is and it isn't a Bond spoof because it's also a comic book, which clearly there's plenty of Bond-styled things in this. But in a way, it's really kind of based on Robin Hood but it also it reminded me more of Batman. Mm-hmm. It's very Batman. Because it's basically about this ridiculously rich guy and his girlfriend who's just steal money and then keep it. <laughs> <laughs> Which so yeah, you know, you know, sounds great. So this is Danger Diabolique, nineteen sixty eight, directed by Mario Bava. This is sort of different for Bava. He's usually a horror guy. Super well-known for horror, quite frankly. And this is... There's nothing horrific about this. This is like a straight-up comic book in the best way, but it's shot like a comic. So it's shot really, really, really sincerely, but every single thing about it is ridiculous. From the mirror tunnel that they have to drive through in order to get to their insanely expansive underground lair where they both take showers in glass cubes where their bodies are obscured by different shapes and then they lay on their revolving bed and make out and millions of dollars (laughs) (laughs) it's perfect it's a perfect film yeah, they drive back from their crime to enter their bat cave. You know, there's some fake rock that opens up and they drive in. But then once they get into the bat cave, it's like the coolest Bond villain lair ever. It's like 16 of the coolest Bond villain layers all in one. Yeah, and it's just like the Bond villain layers where you're like, who built this? <laughs> <laughs> this secret thing that was clearly built by an army because there's no way... So Diabolique, of course, is uh, John Philip Law is the actor for the, this character. And Marissa Mel plays Eva Kant, who is his girlfriend, who just sits around in different outfits looking good. I mean... Barely in any outfits. <laughs> one of the best parts of this movie is that it, it takes 30 minutes. I timed it. It takes 30 minutes for Diabolique and Eva to say anything. 
They say absolutely nothing because they are that (laughs) well-developed. They're beautiful. They don't need to be (laughs) well-developed. Yeah, no. They make out more times than they say one goddamn word (laughs) to each other. And it's all the better for it. It's very Batman. There's a press conference where Michelle Piccoli is in here, by the way. I don't know how he got in this movie. He plays this ginkgo who's like the police detective. And he makes this press conference where he's like he won't make a fool of me anymore and then they show you he's holding on to these capsules that are called exhilarating gas and anti-exhilarating gas which is apparently just laughing gas but i just love that they have a a cut to you in a very comic book panels type shot the pill and the antidote and then diabolic goes out there and sprays all the laughing gas so the whole thing turns into a laughing stock They end up in a nightclub where women are in cages and naked people are playing a giant xylophone. (laughs) It doesn't get better than this part. And a joint is passed from hand to hand to hand to hand about 50 times. I don't even know what that scene was doing in there other than to appeal to the hippie kids and sort of capture what the perfect hippie club must be. It wasn't much better than the movies that we watched for our LSD episode. (laughs) It was about as corny. So how do you feel about this movie? It looks amazing. It's such a cool looking movie. It's Batman. It's a 60s Batman. But if it really knew how to use its budget, because this is clearly not a big budget film, but it really knows how to use that money to make really cool looking stuff. And the great Ennio Morricone score right. also really helps this movie out to make it a whole lot of fun. So R.I.P. Michelle Piccoli and Ennio Morricone, two greats who add considerably to this film. Piccoli is actually the only character with any personality. Oh, actually, the bad, bad guy. Sort of the plot of this movie is that the detective who wants to defeat the undefeatable Diabolique and stop all of these amazing heists. He decides to make it worth the crime lord in town, Valmont, worth his while to to, uh, to help him capture Diabolique. Right, the guy that has a plane that then has a button on the plane that opens a trap door in the plane while it's still flying so that people just fall out of the plane. Yeah, so our boring sort of good guy who's trying to defeat Diabolique and the really bad guy who's this you know awful villain who's much worse than Diabolique are sort of both working together to defeat this master criminal. And they both have so much more personality than our hero Diabolique does. He and his beautiful girlfriend have no personality whatsoever, but they're just fun to watch. They're like Wile E. Coyote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a scene where he pulls a mirror over the highway so the cops think a car is oncoming yeah this is the level of genius (laughs) other films have tried to be live action cartoons but this movie succeeds in ways that a lot of them don't it never achieves anything more deep than live action cartoon but it does it really really well one of the low-key funniest lines in this film is when michelle Pickley ends up in Diabolic's lair and he yells at him to come out. He says, come out. Don't be a hero. He's not a hero. (laughs) (laughs) There's like nothing heroic about him. As you said, he is the most boring dude on the planet. 
And all he does is steal and just keep it. He's not even doing like good or bad. He's just being a dick. (laughs) And he has like Mr. Spock hair, which that's the one thing I don't understand. They give Diabolic the worst hair in the planet. And if you look at the comic, it's just a guy who has like a severe widow's peak. But for this, they were like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So let's just give him like a really awful Mr. Spock point, like a devil's point down to his eyebrows. It's, Are you it's, saying Mr. Spock is not a sex symbol? I mean, he was in his own way, but he's an alien. And this in Diabolic's a man. I mean, I guess there's not a whole lot to say about this one. Like most of these movies and like Bond in general, they're just pure exercises in style. This movie has more gold than Goldfinger ever even thought about. It's true. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, as far as a Bond film, I mean, I guess this is a Bond film in that it is pretty sincere in its indulgence and all of the things that Bond indulges in, but it has so much more fun with the style of it and it buys into the cartoonish nature of it that it's more enjoyable to me than a Bond movie ever is. Because it's less concerned with posturing and it's just more concerned with fun. And I kind of wonder in part if it helps that the comic book was created and, and written by two sisters. So that even Eva Kant is his girlfriend who is definitely like <laughs> just a supermodel. Like there's really nothing there. But she is useful at least and she loves him. She's sincere so... But there's, there's not, I mean, besides a handful of zoom-ins on her boobs and gratuitous shower scenes. All at a PG level, mind you. Yeah. Even when it's doing those things. Oh, the shower scene I can't explain. But even when it's doing the, the zoom-in, it's like to show a necklace kind of thing. So I don't know. It's definitely a weird movie. And it needs to be seen. I would say of all of the movies in this, I would start with this one. <laughs> and then kind of work your way back. I think it's interesting how it's so easy to put these master thieves like Diabolique or Modesty Blaze in the same category as James Bond or these you know, the number three hitman in Japan. And they're all James Bond figures. It's like the fact that James Bond is supposed to be a good guy doesn't even really come into play in the fantasy at all. And I think that's interesting. And even when... In some of these other movies, besides the ones I just named, like the Danish and the Czech one, the Bond figure is just this sort of side character who's there just to be mocked. And Bond is not about good guys versus bad guys. And part of the fantasy is not that he is saving the world. And that makes the Bond fantasy very different than like a a superhero fantasy What's exciting about Bond is he has permission to kill. We can watch him kill people and know that it's okay because he's got permission to do it. We don't really care that he's defeating these bad guys because there's nothing at stake. And that may be part of why I'm not very enchanted by the James Bond mythology. Because his goodness doesn't come into play at all, really. It doesn't matter if he's a good guy, he's a bad guy. He's just this guy who can kill without remorse and he has sex with a lot of hot ladies and that's all there is to the james bond fantasy all of these movies kind of have that in common in making fun of the james bond mythology is like yeah i mean that's all there is to this guy we can do whatever we want and it's still 
a James Bond spoof because that's all you're looking for. Death and sex and uh, here you go. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> but I feel like Flint and Helm really did the, the death and um, sex stuff better in a way. Because they're clear parodies. Like, they just pretty much play up only boobs and guns. While, like, these European and the Japanese one are, like, a whole other ball game to me. They're all at once playing that they're better than Bond while still actively participating in the craze. So at that point, it's like, you know, how much are you really making fun of this when you're actively indulging in it? Well, yeah, I mean, that's why you make a spoof, because you want to have all the fun that the people who make the the real ones have. But you also want to say, oh, but I'm better than that by spoofing it, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> spoof, I feel, either is like you're actively ribbing the thing or you're just totally indulging in it. One of the things that I feel like I sort of wrestle with whenever we do these episodes, which in part is because I have an interest in the bootleg versions of Bond, I think more than actual Bond. But I also, part of that interest is trying to understand why Bond is like so universally mocked while also being so loved. And I think you touch upon it a second ago. Like, I think you're right. Like, it isn't the superhero fantasy and it's much more indulgent. And I feel that maybe part of why people would mock that you know, instead of just saying like, no, that people want to like both participate in it, but they're they're It just feels like it feels like they're embarrassed. That's kind of what a lot of these movies feel like to me, that there's like a general embarrassment of confronting what we really want, plus indulging in all of the things at the same time, but doing it in that cheeky way so that we can sort of get away with it or at least justify it to ourselves. Like, like, sure, I'm going to eat the whole bag of gummy worms but like as a joke (laughs) but i I feel like that's sort of a puritanical american way of looking at it like oh yeah i really want to be james bond but you know he's not such a great guy and it's kind of embarrassing to just want to have sex with hot chicks and shoot people but i but it's the europeans that are being the puritanical ones i think like i think america actually was ahead of itself in the self-indulgent boorish jerk community (laughs) like we're loving it like we have flint and helm like we're having a great time whereas like all of these other countries seem to be like dealing with that hangover from wartime austerity and like the idea that progress is doing better for your country and your family it's that superhero thing as opposed to just doing better for yourself and i feel like the closest that we have as a you know a brother in jerkiness is italy <laughs> like they're totally on board but the rest of these countries seem a bit more reserved in a way like they're they're swapping out the focus to be you know purely silly instead of just being boorish because they're afraid of just being boorish well and they're more focused on just how the regular guy compares to this larger than life james bond figure in America, we're satisfied with this sort of James Bond substitute where the flint or the or the helm are are still like operating outside the you know laws of society in order to preserve society to you know protect the status quo. Whereas, like a lot of these European ones, and uh, I guess not so much the Japanese one, but all, all the rest, even the the Chabrol, where it's you know just sort of this regular woman, Jean Seberg, who's, uh, you know, sort of stepping into the role of, of super spy without having any training. But that seems to be the theme that runs through a lot of these is that 
it's sort of mocking this idea that, oh, we, we have to operate outside of society in order to protect it. And it, it's sort of uh, saying, well, what if it's just some kind of regular schlub who is put into that role? And it takes, a, you know, sort of a, a socialist kind of, you know, pop, populist version of James Bond. Yeah, I guess maybe the, you know, the galaxy brain way of looking at it, as you're implying, is that these movies sort of hold up a mirror to us, the viewer, and mock us for being overweight schlubs who think that we in any possible way could be James Bond, even in our fantasies. It really is. It's kind of a, a puzzle, and I'm, I'm sort of coming around to your way of thinking that these bootleg Bonds that analyze like why are we so fascinated by this character is is in a way more interesting than the character itself but i'm not sure what conclusions we can draw from that the conclusion i'm drawing is that i won which is that you finally (laughs) said that you enjoy these bootleg bonds even if it's with a giant asterisk so i'm totally satisfied we can end it um what are we going to call this episode I feel like the, the the most important question, even beyond Bond, is how can we define your sense of humor uh, as, as told through these films? It does seem to be a lot about me trying to figure out what makes me chuckle. It goes beyond um, Bond. Like, it's definitely like, what you're not, this isn't like, because I get it. I know exactly what these are, and it's not Bond. These are the Bond versions. In general, they just seem to be making fun of storytelling in general, not just the whole James Bond type of story. It's like, here's what you expect from this sort of story, or here's, you know, just constantly sort of, you know, subverting your expectations. And uh, and I, I find that hilarious, especially when it's done in a way where it's, they're not obvious jokes like you don't even realize that, that these are jokes they're making. They're just trying to subvert your expectations and you're, you're thinking, am I supposed to laugh or, or what? And I guess that's, I guess it's as simple as that. So maybe the title of the episode is Deadpan Bond, Absurdist Bond. I think the working title was Weird Bond Bootlegs from a bunch of different countries in the 60s. But that's a little, that's kind of a mouthful. I think I've boiled it down to subversive, deadpan, meta-absurdist, anti-Bond bootleg Bond films. Yes, perfect. <laughs> I was sentenced to the jail. They didn't realize I knew the owner of the power station. There we bombed and mined, but never intertwined. We were crazy. You know. I was lazy. I know. Yes, we should have. And we could have. Perhaps we can. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.